The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. And now, it's time for Radio Jobline with your host, Scott Possessor, right here on 103.9 LI News Radio. Welcome, everybody. It must be Saturday afternoon from 2 to 3 p.m., or it might be Wednesday night from 9 to 10 p.m. We're on twice a week to talk about your career, talk about different job markets, talk about emerging job markets, talk about success in the workplace, workplace issues. We do it all here. Been doing it for a thousand years, about seven or eight right here on LI News Radio. And uh, shout out to everyone. I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. I hope you got a, enjoying the holiday season, uh, loving the crisp weather, um, and so on. But, you know, when I do radio shows, I book them based on a level of interest. And there's a couple of ways that I can tell how interested people are in certain topics. One of them is because we post after they, the broadcasts here on radio, on LA News Radio, we post these shows on on my LinkedIn account, um, Scott Possessor. You can just connect with me anytime. And I'll get um, 1,000, I'll get 2,000 additional listens depending on the topic. So if I'm talking about a topic that's not terribly exciting, I might get 800. If I'm talking about a topic people really seem receptive to, I might get 3,000. So one of the biggest responses I got this year to topics and also to our blog, which we write about the, the same subjects that we have on Radio Jobline, was the climate jobs and, and the climate jobs that are already here and those that are still coming and how to prepare for the next wave of what's happening in our economy, which is these climate jobs. So here's what I did. The other day, I just, for the fun of it, Googled climate jobs. And you know how you can do that? with You can Google accounting jobs, and it's going to send you to the various platforms, Indeed, CareerBuilder, and so on and so on, uh, various posts to come off websites and so on. So I started looking at the jobs, and I thought I saw a page. I saw a second page. I saw five pages. I saw 10 pages. It got to be like 20 pages, and I'm going, oh, my God. There are so many climate jobs. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. And this is in the face of a of an economy that's not really doing so great right now. There's two schools of thought. Some say we're uh, about to end this recessionary economic period, and some say we're about to enter it. So there's no um, complete understanding of where we stand in the economy. But one thing you can be sure of is that there are climate jobs. Um, I'm going to say there are tens of thousands of them in the country right now. So I just started out sustainability specialist, director of environmental justice, Manager Reliability Services, Clean Energy Project Lead, uh, Manager Communications, there's a lot of communications going on, Director of Climate Tech, uh, Environmental Research and Communications, Program Managers, Climate Energy and Sustainability Engineers, uh, Software Engineers Connected to Climate Artificial Intelligence. And the list went on and on and on. And you can do the same thing I did, folks. And just Google climate jobs, and you're going to be amazed at what you see. It's kind of like what happened with artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence, you kept hearing about it and hearing about it and hearing about it, and then wham, chat GPT came out, and then artificial intelligence was everywhere. It went from nowhere to everywhere, real fast. So that seems to be what's happening with climate jobs. So 
We're going to keep on addressing it. We're going to keep on uh, writing about it. We're going to keep on trying to bring it to the attention of people who are looking for their next career path or college graduates who are looking for a major and not sure what to do. So what we did is we reached out again to um, a fabulous guest who uh, really is responsible for starting this whole wave right here on Jobline, a gentleman by the name of Keith Rizzardi. Uh We really like Keith. Uh, Keith is um, a professor of law at Nova Southeastern University near Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He's a former U.S. Department of Justice litigator. He teaches and practices environmental law, and he's back uh, with me to talk about how climate change and its many challenges will continue to affect the job market. Keith, welcome back to Radio Jobline. Scott, I am excited to be back. I appreciate the return invitation, and let me tell you, even since our last show, there have been so many changes in the climate arena. This stuff is happening really fast, and it's going to affect our economy really quickly. Yeah, I hope in a positive way, because we could use some positive news, Keith. Um, I, I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, I'm sure you'll be sure you have. The economy just has has been lackluster for the last 18 or 20 months. Uh, I'm kind of hoping that after the new year, we're going to start talking about interest rate drops and, uh, you know, mortgage rates getting better and the economy healing. But right now we're still in a, in a, I don't know, a state of flux. I, I, and, and there are two schools of thought. Well, what is your school of thought on how the economy is doing, Keith? Well, I'm sort of in the, the long-term growth mindset and I get that the inflation challenges can be troubling and can slow us all down a little bit, but um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm a long-term optimist, and I think even in this climate arena, we're going to confront the challenges, and there are going to be jobs for people. Okay. So, so uh, again, I, I, when I talk to my guests, I ask almost everybody how they feel about the, the economy, and uh, some people are optimistic and some people are not optimistic. So uh, there's really no definitive answer, but what is definitive, Keith, and if you heard my little preamble at the beginning, is that I have never seen such a collection of climate jobs. Now, maybe I wasn't looking carefully, you know, but now I am looking carefully. And when I tell you I saw thousands of climate jobs um, that were on the internet from, from multiple different sources. This is something I have not seen before. And, and I think you and I were sort of on the tip of the, of the iceberg when, when we did our first show a few months back. But uh, let, let's talk about, let's do a little recap of what we talked about before. We kind of put the, the um, actually, you, you know, we talked about disasters and, and the, the tornadoes, the hurricanes, the floods. Everything, how that's affecting our homes, how it's affecting our insurance, how it's affecting food and goods, making them more expensive. It's affecting our waters and our health. So let's talk about the, the areas that we kind of put pigeonholed three big areas where climate jobs are coming. We did this a little bit on our last show. Let's get into that again, and then we're going to get a little deeper. Yeah, Scott. So we, we talked about three categories of jobs, like the mitigation jobs where we're trying to prevent the problems of climate change in the first place. And then we talked about the adaptation jobs, which is we're responding to the problems, like what you just said with disasters, right? When the disaster comes and we've got to adapt for it and rebuild after it, those are adaptation. And then whether you're in the mitigation of preventing climate problems or you're in the adapting to climate issues, there are also a whole layer of jobs that are communication-related or planning-related, and there's the, the folks working with the employers and the employees and the customers and the regulators, and, and we, we categorize things largely into those 
three areas. But yeah, I looked at that list you sent me of all those jobs, and it was pretty impressive. Uh, you know, and we're not just talking Indeed. There are even entire websites now dedicated to climate jobs. The U.S. Department of Energy even has its own webpage dedicated to climate careers that people can look up and learn about the various categories of jobs in the climate arena. Okay. So, so yeah, there, there's a lot out there. A lot. Uh, way more than I – Keith, I did it as a joke, but it, it wasn't funny when I saw how many there were. I mean, it, it, it's, it's taking over. So uh, how can people – even if we don't choose one of those three paths, Keith, how can people begin to plan – to make the transition into a climate career, or if you're a college graduate or a high school student, you're thinking about what to do with your life. What sort of majors make sense? You know, how can people, let's start everybody off at the beginning. Sure. So uh, Scott, there, there are some cross-cutting skills that matter for anybody who's going into a, a climate-related profession. And let's start with the biggest one. I said to you at the beginning of the show, how things are happening quickly and they're happening now. Um, we need innovators. We need entrepreneurs. We need people who are capable of big and disruptive thinking, the folks who can innovate new ideas, the folks who can optimize existing technologies. You know, that, there's a whole line of studies for this, and, and entrepreneurship is, is a good area for people to be thinking about to develop some skill sets that really matter for getting into the climate arena and to supplement that you should be thinking about some basic science. I'm not asking everybody to get a STEM major in a science, technology, engineering, or math, but you know, having some awareness and some understanding of the climate challenges, whether it's climate and weather or air and land or water in the oceans or biology, you, you really have to have some sense of what's going on to appreciate the magnitude of this problem. And look, I know there are deniers out there, and there are probably some people that listen to the show who are still skeptical. And anybody who's it, who is, I beg them to go visit NASA's website and go look at the vital signs of the planet and see all these charts and all the data and all the graphs showing not just computer models of what's going to happen in the future, but what's already happening now and how much it's changing the planet. And studying some of that will really help people to, to get into these kinds of careers. And if you're a denier, you should try the little experiment that I did in Google climate jobs, because if, if there's climate change, there's no such thing as climate change. Why are there a million climate jobs out there? So um, that's even more evidence, Keith, that there's, that people who deny climate change are not in touch with what's happening in this universe. Um, but but the other thing is the 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 climate is just one more good reason for people to consider a science degree. In other words, there's all these outreach programs for um, information technology and a couple that come to my mind we've had on Radio Jobline many times. Um, engineering, you know, not enough people going into it. Many, many foreign people coming to the United States, going to school here, staying here, becoming citizens and, and working in the, um, in the engineering field. Um, very popular uh, outside the country, not quite as popular inside the country. Maybe these climate jobs can give folks a little extra impetus to major in science. And I'm going to use myself as an example. I went to college as a pre-med major. I was going to uh, be a doctor. My, my, my mom used to hold out my hands to people and say, look, look, these are the hands of a doctor. Um, you know, the Jewish mom thing. So um, I, I, I didn't make it because I got sick at the sight of blood. So that took care of that, but I already had my chemistry and my physics and my calculus. 
and all the prerequisites for being a biology major. And guess what? I wound up getting a degree in geology, of course. So, <laughs> so, so and see, as you can see, I use that every day. Um, but but being a geology major is something that has actually given me a pretty good handle on meteorology because I took two courses in meteorology as part of my geology degree. And I feel like when they're talking about occlusions and stratocumulus clouds and so on, I'm never in the dark. I, I know what's going on. Um, and it's, it's actually been very helpful. So even if people don't get a degree in science, if you're going to take an elective and you're not sure what to take, maybe you take a, um, you know, some sort of a meteorological or, or climate related elective course, educate yourself, you know, get ready because these jobs are coming and it's a pretty big wave. Yeah, you know, speaking of your geology concerns, uh, just this week, Scott, there were multiple reports about our planet reaching some really critical tipping points. The the Greenland and West uh, Antarctic ice sheets melting at a more rapid rate than ever predicted. The melting permafrost, the coral reef die-offs, the changes in our ocean circulation. And I know for some of our listeners, you know, their their minds are shutting down here as they're hearing all that science. But let me tell you why it matters so much to me. My home insurance just went up extraordinarily. I, my, my, and you're in Florida. You're in Florida. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm in Florida. Right. And my home insurance has now gone north of $10,000 a year. Mm. For, for a typical suburban home, you know, I got a, I got a family of five, and the reason is that the insurance industry has pulled out of Florida, mm. and we're beholden to a state-run, government-subsidized program that is trying to be actuarially sound. And when people are evaluating the risk and they're thinking about all these things that are happening, our climate risks are starting to affect our pocketbooks. And people are saying, wow, this house, this home is at risk of a hurricane. And if that roof gets ripped off, it's going to cost a lot of money. So we need to make sure we recover enough on that premium to pay. And Can you estimate what, what, what was your home insurance cost, say, three, four years ago? I was less than $5,000 a year. So it's doubled. It's doubled in the last it's, few it, years. Yes. Wow. It's, 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 more than, it's more than doubled in the last three years. Wow, that's really something. And it's not just, I'm sure it's not just Florida, but Florida is the most obvious uh, state where that would be a factor. Um, but sure. it, it's coming everywhere, you know, any place on the East Coast. You know, I mean, look at all the floods we've had in New York. We had, we had, we had water pouring into the subways. I, I mean, I mean, you, you, when you see it, it's hard to believe, you know, that we have these weather conditions here in New York, even. But um, I, I feel badly for, for Floridians that uh, some people can't even get flood insurance, right? Absolutely, and and it's challenging. But let me take this back to the degrees that you get to help yourself deal with and get careers in these areas, because if. If, if you're turned off maybe by too much science and you're not thinking you're, you're the person who's getting that degree in geology, well, risk management is an area and even technical writing is an area. And being able to engage in, in a risk assessment and doing cost-benefit analysis, you know, people who have good writing skills and people who have good analysis skills and people who have good critical thinking skills, they're going to be valuable especially if they get themselves a little bit of skill using things like artificial intelligence and how to how to interact with chat GBT and maybe figure out how to optimize problems to deal with climate challenges. So that, that traditional path in college, if you do a little bit extra and you get that technical writing skill and the ability to communicate some science, that's a really valuable skill too, because 
these risk management jobs are real and these disasters are going to be happening and we're going to need people who know how to confront these challenges. Yep. And, and as a, another side of the many-sided prism, you have sort of environmental justice. Mm. Tell me about that. Absolutely. Yeah, so environmental justice is sort of uh, an old concept where for years in the environmental arena, we've been talking about matters of public health and human rights and how uh, way too often in our environmental decision-making, we end up hurting the least well-off the most. And the most simple example of that is something like, well, you know, where does the where does the landfill get located? Oftentimes next to the poorest communities, mm-hmm. and those poorest communities then suffer. But environmental justice is in the, now in the climate context. It's about the fairness sometimes to even to nations. And people are talking about how is it fair that the nations that are emitting the lowest amount of carbon are the ones that are going to be most impacted. And these island nations are, are, are losing their land mass to rising seas. And people are starting to think about ethics and fairness and philosophy and intergenerational concerns. And all of that is part of the climate arena, too, because even for a company that is trying to steer its its reputation and navigate how to put its brand out there, they're thinking about what messages do they want to put out to the to the public about how they participate in our society. And there are jobs there. There are people who are engaged in these discussions about what's fair, what's right, what's ethical, and that that's a lot to think about. And even the traditional philosophy major can have some value. All right, so so we want to reduce our carbon footprint. I think every country in the world would like to do that. A couple that are not doing it, but the uh, United States not having such a great reputation in that area either. But a lot of people are are wondering, how do we do that? How do we mitigate climate change and, and perhaps minimize the damage, the risk, you know, to people and to places and things. Scott, of course, we got to start by talking about energy jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, I already mentioned how there's the U.S. Department of Energy and they've got a web page dedicated to climate career. <clears throat> you know, so the, the first thing we talk about is how do we reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and how do we shift over to renewables and jobs in solar energy or jobs in wind energy or jobs in bioenergy. Just this week, Virgin Airlines uh, flew the first transatlantic flight using biofuels, not not using greenhouse yes, gas. Yes, I saw that. But using yeah. biofuels to go from JFK to Heathrow Airport. You know, so and all of these these are jobs. This is this is innovation. I mean, when you put a solar system on a rooftop, somebody's installing those cells, and and they're, they're in some places they got to clean them, and then there's the repairs that come occasionally for the technical systems, and then there's the optimization for the the technology systems that interact with it. And if you got wind energy systems, you know, they got to maintain the turbines, and you got to you got to uh, make sure this system's functioning, and then there's the grid that goes with it. In, in bioenergy, there's people who are doing the chemistry research and, and uh, figuring out how to grow the grow the next algae so that we can turn it into the fuel. In fact, the uh, Environmental Energy Study Institute, I was looking this one up recently, was uh, reporting on at least half a million new jobs in the U.S. by 2030 was their estimate, just in these areas of renewable energy. I mean, that, that's a huge, huge chunk of the marketplace that could be impacted right there. Yeah. And uh, from a practical standpoint, I'll give you an example. We had a company reach out to us at our executive search firm um, that wanted us to fill 40 jobs for solar salespeople. Not one, not six, 40. 
at one time. And and I said to myself, you know, where are we going to find all these people? Who has who has all this experience? So it, it, it's a challenge. I know the companies now are struggling to find the right candidates that have the uh, right combination of communication skills and scientific skills and so on. But um, I think we're in for a rough ride here because I'm not sure the talent exists out there. Well, you got to hope that people figure out, hey, if I'm not finding a job in the arena I'm in, maybe I can retrain a little bit, get some skills to go do this other thing. And, you know, solar, wind, bioenergy, that's all great. But we also need to have the ability to have battery backup technologies, too. Those, those technologies don't work without people to do batteries. There's a lot of innovation taking place there, too. And then there's also, like, more traditional jobs that are about decreasing our emissions, you know, things like controlling our pollution and, and figuring out how to reduce the impact of stuff we're already doing. Sometimes it's just a matter of maintenance. All right, so much more to talk about. When you're listening to Radio Jobline with Scott Possessor, I have, once again, the amazing Keith Rosardi, uh, a professor, really knows his stuff, former litigator, and he has putting this in terms that we can all understand because there's a giant wave of climate jobs that aren't coming. They're here. If you want to be on Radio Jobline, you can write to me, scottp118 at gmail.com, scottp118 at gmail.com. And do do connect with me, P-A-S-S-E-S-E-R on LinkedIn, and I'll explain why after the break. Listen to the news. Be right back. May the four winds blow you safely And now, welcome back to Radio Jobline with your host, Scott Possessor, right here on LI News Radio. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Radio Jobline with Scott Possessor. We've been talking today, uh, once again, about climate, uh, climate jobs. And why are we talking about climate jobs? Because if you Google climate jobs, you're going to see thousands of job listings, not to mention websites devoted to it, as Keith, our guest, uh, mentioned just a moment ago. So the climate wave of jobs is hitting us something like what happened with artificial intelligence, which was like, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, and then ChatGPT came out, and then wham! Artificial intelligence was all over the place uh, in the user's hand, not just the corporate hand. And I think the same thing is happening with climate jobs. And I think it requires the same amount of attention, which is why I, I'm focusing again on Radio Jobline with our guest, uh, you know, Keith um, Rosardi, uh, who's an old friend and a professor of law at Nova Southeastern University near Fort Lauderdale. He's a former U.S. Department of Justice litigator. He teaches and practices environmental law. And he's back with me to talk about how climate change and its many challenges will continue to affect the job market. Keith, welcome back. Thanks, Scott. Keith, there's such a push. There's such a push in the country for electric vehicles. And, and, and there's multiple reasons. Uh, obviously, it's not using traditional f- fossil fuel uh, and a less carbon footprint. Got it. Get it. Uh, lots of companies are making the conversion. I'm even seeing trucks that are now electric vehicles. So where are we going with this? Are, are we still focused on hybrid or are we focused more on, on straight up electric? 
Well, you've got your early adopters and you've got your general public. And the early adopters are getting on board with those EVs. And we're starting to see that that shift. And the public as a whole, they're starting to get the message. And they're realizing hybrid technology is a good way to go, at least as a starting point. And, and of course, like any technology that rolls out, it takes some time to get implemented. You know, to, to have EVs, we need charging networks. And we need batteries that people can drive their 200 or 300 mile trip with. So, you know, the the consumer demand is, is coming along. And I think we're going to continue to see that growth in the EVs because it is going to help us reduce the amount of greenhouse gases and, and gasoline consumption that we're going to engage in. And look, Elon Musk did an interview recently with the New York Times, and it was really simple. As the manufacturing increases and his costs come down, the demand is going to go up. And as Tesla's become less and less expensive, you know, he's projecting that he's going to be the largest auto manufacturer on the planet. And he, he may be right, and especially if he's able to drive those, those costs down and as those charging networks grow. But by the way, those are jobs. Yeah, you know, people are employed in the arena of building those cars. I was just thinking, yeah, I was just not, not just thinking about building the cars, but building the charging stations, right? So you, you might be an entrepreneur that says, well, okay, I'm, I've got money to invest. I'm going to start building charging stations and, and taking my little piece of that pie, which would add up to a huge amount as electronic vehicles get increasingly popular. And by the way, uh, just for the, uh, again, to bring it back down to, to my homepage for a minute, my wife and I went to buy a hybrid car about um, a year ago. And it was, you know, COVID was just ending and it was, cars were still not available. And the actual, the dealership told me it would be a one year wait to get a hybrid and our lease was up so we couldn't we couldn't do it you know we wound up buying a, a fuel a fuel engine but uh we didn't want to do it we wanted to buy a hybrid so uh, is the availability there that's the question i mean you know unless you you know not everybody can afford a tesla you know uh, what what sort of avail i mean do we is the availability catching up with the demand I think the auto industry is figuring out that the demand for hybrid is there and they're going to continue to adapt to that. And in the meantime, you know, Tesla is going to continue to produce more and more cars and their prices are going to come down. And then to your point about the jobs that are out there, it, when people do buy the electrical vehicle, you know, you have to get a, a charging station installed at your home. You need some electrician who's coming out there who can do the wiring to set up that special charging station at your house. And that's a lot of people across the nation who are going to be needing charging stations. So, oh, so we can add electricians. We can add electricians to the to the list. Absolutely. All right. All right. So and then uh, let's talk about engineers. Right. So so w what's changing in the world of engineering? Well, I, I'm historically I'm a water guy. So mm -hmm. I, I always start there. I mean, we're we're dealing with our water systems are going to have numerous challenges as our climate changes. We've got problems of getting toxics out of our watershed, but even more directly, rising seas here in Florida and in low-lying coastal areas means saltwater intrusion that threatens the pipes that are your water distribution system. It could affect your drinking water. And we're going to have engineers who are trying to tackle these problems and these big infrastructure issues, and there are jobs, big construction projects that are going to be associated with how do we fix our water systems and get them ready. So we can, we can actually point to anything like this, like let's say droughts, right? There, there are many more droughts than there used to be. There's much more heat. There's, there's um, you know, lake beds and stream beds and river beds that have never been exposed 
to the sun because, at least in our lifetimes, because they've been covered by water. All of a sudden, now they're visible. People are finding treasure and all kinds of crazy things. But now that all these droughts are happening, you know, are we doing engineering with dams, for example, or are there other things that we can do to to improve the water supply? Yeah, we're definitely going to have to figure out how to become more adaptive to the cycle of of drought and intense rainfall combined. Mm. Because what ha- what's happening that's so unfair in the climate arena is we're no longer operating within our traditional boundaries of our normal expectations. And instead, the droughts are much more worse than we expected, and the heavy storm events are much worse than we expected. So suddenly we don't have water, and then we have suddenly too much water. And yeah. We've got to have engineers who figure out, hey, how do we make our reservoirs bigger so that they can store these instantaneous floodwaters? Yeah, let's what, wait, let's just put a bookmark there for one second because if sure. you have if you don't have enough water and then you get a giant rainstorm and there's no vegetation to soak it up and it's just falling on dry ground, it's wasted. And here in Florida, one of the problems we have is that water ends up in a canal system where it gets discharged out to the ocean instead of sticking it in a reservoir so we have it for the next drought. Right. Yeah, so we need uh, so we, get, we need engineers to work on a whole new system of reservoirs. And, and then we need those reservoirs for the agricultural industries, too. You know, these, these issues of drought and flood dramatically affect our food supply. And there are going to be people who are going to be leading innovators and thinkers about how do we adapt to a changing climate world in agriculture. The plants are affected. The cycle of rain and drought affects them. The heat affects them. Corn is Earth's most vulnerable crop right now. Mm. We're going to need people to figure out the genetics and the chemistry of growing different kinds of corn and rice and wheat and bananas and coffee. I mean, how about taking it to your backyard? Even the vineyards on Long Island are going to need to figure out how are they going to adapt to the changing climate that we're grappling with. And there are jobs there for a whole lot of biologists and a lot of engineers. Yeah, and uh, I've seen interviews recently with farmers you know, um, actually more political than they need to be, but all uniformly complaining about the 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 climate change affecting their ability to produce crops, make a living. You know, a lot of farmers are going out of business. You know, it's only it's, it's like the small ones are going away and, and the big ones are taking over. But it just seems like the, the it's all changing so fast, Keith, it's it's hard to catch your breath, you know, and, and say, well, what can I do about this? And we need good government to help us with our planning. We need good businesses to help us with our planning. We need people who understand things like disaster management and how to plan, how to respond, and how to recover to these disasters. In fact, Bill Gates even wrote a book called How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. Mm -hmm. And he was writing about these very issues and how we need to have power for the poorest people, but we need to achieve net zero emissions. But most importantly, his message was we need innovation and we need breakthroughs and we need people to help us solve some of the climate challenges because otherwise we're in for a lot of challenging times. And yeah, food security could be a real concern for us. I took a course in uh, in college and it, it, it just came to me, Keith because college was like three, four hundred years ago. But when I was there, I took a course in hydrogeology. And I I remember being so um, unbelievably impressed by the power of water. You know, how much energy 
it's supplied. You know, you talk about solar power and various different types of power, uh, wind power and so on, but not too many people talk about water power. You know, is it, are, are we are we engineering that right? Are we getting that right? Are we getting close with, with using the power of water? You know, hydroelectric has been a, a, an important part of our renewable energy footprint in this country for a long time. Um, and it comes with its benefits and it comes with its consequences. But it, given the unpredictability of the climate cycles, it's perhaps not as ideal as other options like solar and wind where we can innovate and then use battery technology to recapture that. Because the problem with hydropower is if our lake falls below the critical thresholds, you've got this massive expenditure on the dam where you're not generating any more power. Mm. And the sun is always coming out, and if we can capture some of that solar energy and stick it in the battery for when it goes dark and we need it, that would be a really idyllic way to be solving some of these problems. All right, now you mentioned the sun, so obviously we need to talk about air conditioning. Because we are, the whole planet is air conditioned. I shouldn't. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't even say that because it's not fair. There are many countries. It's hard. It's hard to say that you know to even admit this. But there are many countries of the world that don't have air conditioning. But here in the United States, we have plenty of air conditioning. So we probably lead the world in air conditioning. So my question is: Are we doing that right? Are we doing it efficiently? Are we using enough, uh, too much energy to produce the coolness that we seek to live? You know, going back to my opening theme, Scott, all paths lead us back to innovation. And yeah, the AC technology can innovate. We can be using better chemicals, and we're trying to, and we've got new protocols in place for that. We can improve the energy efficiency of our devices. But then the other reality, as you said, is people are going to turn their air conditioners on. And when we get that next heat wave, of course they're going to turn it on. And as they turn it on, they're going to break down periodically, which means there's repairs. And if there's repairs, well, you need an HVAC technician to come visit your house and help you with the cooling. So going back to your jobs, yeah, there's basic jobs there in HVAC, and then there's jobs that are going to go up the line in those industries that are involved in air conditioning to help cool our planet. But you know, of course, the better option is to figure out ways to naturally cool ourselves instead of having to run the air conditioner to cool things down. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it just seems like such a race, doesn't it, Keith? It, it, it feels to me like there's a race, you know, like we're racing against the elements. The elements are changing. The The demand is increasing uh, for all these things that have not yet even been engineered, not even in some cases, not even on the planning board yet. So um, I'm very concerned that that the government is giving the right direction and, and the people of the United States are are angry enough and, and scared enough to take action that's going to make a difference in the world so that we can win the race. You know, Scott, there's an emerging area of psychology called ecological grief. <laughs> oh, I've got that. I, I've got it. I've got it. People who are specializing in this in this niche and talking about that. And yeah, we're, we're all struggling with, oh my gosh, is the planet changing faster than we can adapt to? And the medical professions are going to have to adapt because the next heat wave means that there is going to be a whole lot of elderly people who don't have their air conditioning working sitting in the hospital because they're having heat strokes. And we could have changes in our disease patterns and we could have changes in the transmissions of our, of our sickness. And the health professions are going to change. But 
that again means we're going to have to innovate. It again means there's going to be the potential for, for jobs that are out there. I mean, everywhere you turn, the challenges of climate change, yeah, they come with the, the consequences, but they're also going to be a test for humanity where we're going to have to adapt and there are going to be people who are thinking their way through these problems and trying to help us figure out the next solution to the next problem. Yeah, and we we touched on this already, but something I, that I think also is going to generate a lot of jobs is disaster management. Now, I, I told you about the that we've seen a crop, a, a complete new crop of restoration companies that that go in and restore your house to uh, whatever whatever happened, whether there was a flood or a, a landslide or a, or a um, uh, any disaster, a tornado, hurricane. I mean, you can probably go on and on and, and make quite a list, but. There's a whole new wave of companies that that will remove the mildew and 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 take care of whatever happened to your house. And I see that as another very rapidly growing industry, that restoration industry. You know, even at my law firm where I do some consulting work, Scott, we've got some folks who are helping us develop disaster plans. What happens if the storm hits and it knocks your building out? What, not just what if your internet goes down? What if you actually have catastrophic de- destruction? What did you do with your electronic files? Did you have them backed up? Do you have a plan for how you get your matters covered? And that kind of thinking is going across the board for all sorts of companies. You know, if, if, you're, if you're relying on the supply chain and you have to think about transportation of goods, or you have to think about your sources, or you have to think about your contracts. When disasters hit, what happens to your supply chain? So you're thinking about how to plan to keep your product or your business operating if things go wrong because of those climate challenges. And yes, disaster management is a really important skill for folks who are in this arena, and it's going to be one of those macro-level cross-cutting areas where anybody involved in this arena is going to be thinking about, I have to be projecting some worst-case scenarios and then how to adapt to those worst-case scenarios. I remember after Hurricane Sandy that a lot of houses on the east end and on the south portion of Long Island spent quite a bit of money, Keith, I'm not going to say any numbers, but quite a bit of money on elevating their homes. And and, And there are many times where it crossed my mind and I said, why? Why don't you just move? I mean, shouldn't there be people in this country on, on that live on the shore from Florida, the tip of Florida, from Key West, all the way to Maine? Why are these people not moving? I mean, aren't they at risk? You know, shouldn't we all be moving away from the coastline um, to, to save ourselves from all these magnificent storms that we've been getting um, and, and perhaps, you know, save on the flood insurance? And, and you know, there's increasing number of reasons to do it. I'm just wondering if there's going to be some sort of an exodus of people moving out of some uh, some rough areas. Yeah, you're talking about one of the hardest concepts in in the climate discussion, which is retreat, Scott. You know, in in some communities in Alaska and Louisiana, that's already happened. I have a friend who's involved in this kind of disaster planning in Monroe County in the Florida Keys. You know, which places do we decide are just getting to the point where the risk is too high and maybe you shouldn't be living there? But that's a really hard conversation. You know, after Sandy, you're going to tell those people on Staten Island, no, you have to leave. That was their home. They rode the ferry. They had their job in Manhattan. And now you want them to abandon it and to go where? 
So for some of those people, the easy answer was, I would stay and put, I've got this piece of property and I'm just going to put the house up on stilts. And, you know, there was a New York City program that helped some of those folks do that. And others did choose exactly what you're suggesting, which is, you know what, I'm done. I'm checking out and I'm going to take a check and I'm going to go buy another home somewhere else. But how do you pay for that? There are extraordinary expenses there, and that's a real challenge whenever we talk about the issue of retreat. Yeah, I think I think people in in my situation that are going to be retiring somewhat soon, you know, we're we're gonna we're not gonna get a place that's on the shoreline. That's for sure. We're gonna we're gonna take into account climate change, and we're going to move to an area. But I also worry about the value of property. You know, look at all the expensive homes in on the West Coast, and 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 think about the you know the Florida coast, and 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 all of the all throughout the country, all the way up. I mean. Your homes are very expensive when they're on a shoreline, but are they going to stay expensive? Yeah, I think the property professions are going to have some challenges. Uh, I talk about this in my my law classes. What happens to the value of that coastal piece of real estate when there's rising seas and recurring flooding? And remember, you're not talking necessarily about the house immediately getting inundated in the next 10 years. But what you are probably talking about is the roadways getting flooded periodically as the high tide events come. And at some point, that becomes so frequent, it makes it really hard to live in a place. But Whose fault is that? Who endures that? Going back to one of the points we mentioned earlier about fairness and ethics and environmental justice. Oh my gosh, we're now talking about what's fair to the people who live on the coastline who've had that house for many years. Should they just be forced to relocate and leave because of climate change that they didn't really do? These are really hard issues, but they're going to change the property professions. And real estate's going to be dealing with all sorts of interesting issues like disclosures and the responsibilities that come with that. So, by the way, there's jobs in areas like compliance and regulatory compliance and making sure that you're doing all your things that you need to do to disclose that coastal flooding, that coastal property problem. And in 24 states, we've got climate laws on these things that people need to be experts in. And by the way, there's jobs for lawyers there, too. Yeah, you were saying that last time. And, and um, that it's a good it's a good place to put a bookmark, Keith. I, I, I tell you, I can't thank you enough for for coming on the program and talking to us about such such an odd phenomenon, such a weird place we're in right now with all the other things happening to the world you know the economy the the wars and i don't even i don't say war i say wars plural um not to mention all the wars in all the other countries that we don't uh, talk about every day um but you have that you have all the divisive politics you have all the craziness that's going on in the world and then all of a sudden climate change is sort of coming out of nowhere even though it's been coming for 30 40 years um and it's now you know producing tens of thousands of jobs because people just have to rethink their whole situation so this is a continuing issue for us keith we are not by any stretch of the imagination done talking about this i would love to see you have a regular spot here on on radio jobline and keep writing for our blog as well and keep getting the word out there you know to to people that you must be wary you every move you make you've got to think about climate change I think that was well said, Scott. And I encourage all those folks out there to ramp themselves up on it and go back to that NASA webpage because this stuff is real. And the more we talk about it, the more people start to deal with it. Fantastic. All right, uh, Keith Rizzardi, thank you again so much for being here uh, with me again. And uh, we're going to be together again soon, my friend. Uh, you've been listening to Radio Traveling with Scott Possessor. Uh, write to me, scottp118 at gmail.com if you want to be on the show. Have a great idea. Happy holidays, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. 
and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.